Thank you, Dan. Uh, a little over five months ago, I offered a sermon. Right? It was titled uh, The Church and Science, I think, was the official title. Uh, it was really about science. It was a completely secular discussion about science. Completely secular, like the Book of Esther, but in every other conceivable way, completely unlike the Book of Esther. Um, Nonetheless, what I wanted to mention was that I went way over time last time. I think I prognosticated I'd be speaking for 25 minutes. I ended up speaking for 45 minutes. So I imagine myself standing up here bloviating about science, and I can't even predict how long I was going to speak for. But the important thing is that you guys hung in there with me, and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate that very much. Um, At some point in the future, I have a mind to, I kind of have it formulated, and I sort of sketched it out a little bit. I want to offer a service where, or a sermon, where we juxtapose what we understand about modernity, especially with the scientific sort of underpinnings that we talked about about five months ago, and uh, the, the church, God's law, God's will, juxtapose them. Um, I had thought about possibly offering that today, but I realized as I started going over it, it was far too long for a single go, so I decided to split it up into two parts. And so the first part we're going to cover today. Uh, it itself is broken up into two parts, kind of like the sermon from about five months ago. One of them is called, I'm calling the continuum, and the other one I'm calling God's will slash God's wrath. Central to both of these are two passages, and they're very well known to you. And I want to forewarn you, I'm reading from the Common English Bible, the CEB as it's called, Um, I'm not too proud to admit I I really enjoy the simplicity of the language, but as we'll see later on as we examine in part two some examples of God's wrath, um, the translation can be very, very important and the CEB will fail us, whereas some of the other translations will be more successful at uh, really describing what what has happened. Um, The first passage is Genesis 1.27, again from the CEB. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. The second one comes from the New Testament. You're all very familiar with this. Matthew, starting uh, chapter 22, starting at verse 37. He, Jesus, replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. Excuse me. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And Damon talked about this when we went over the book of Matthew. In chapter 22, earlier we had the parable of the wedding party. And then we have a sequence of two questions. Um, one about taxes from the Pharisees, one about resurrection from the Sadducees. This particular passage is remarkable for many, many reasons, and you could write volumes, and volumes have been written um, by exegetes on this over the centuries. But you think about it, it's neither parabolic, it's not allegorical, and there's no explanation given. That's it. That's it. Right? All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And that's it. End of story. Uh, I also want to point out at the beginning of Genesis 5, um, we have a re-echo of the idea that we're made in God's image. And again from the CEB, on the day uh, 
from, this is part of uh, the first verse, on the day God created humanity, he made them to resemble God. This is kind of returning to the whole theme of approaching things rationally, uh, logically. In my mind, anyway, uh, the idea of man being made in the image of God, in the divine image, implies that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. There's an implication there, because they think about it, right? So, wherever you happen to be, coffee shop, at church, at work, okay, you're an image bearer, okay, guy or gal next to you, or the guy that's speeding by you on the freeway, that's another image bearer. We're all image bearers. We have this similar attribute. We have this image bearingness. It's our attribute. It's an essential attribute. So we cannot really say with that in mind that my image bearing self is any more or less important. Like the way I look after myself, like I'm looking after my own needs and I'm trying to accumulate resources for myself, right? I have to be mindful of other people who are trying to get resources and looking after themselves. Because my image bearingness is not any more or less important than any other. So to me, the two are very tightly connected. Okay, part one. <clears throat> uh, calling it the continuum. We know that the revelation of God through the suffering and death and resurrection of His Son in, in corporeal form we call it the Bible for short, we call it Scripture for short, but we know what's happening, right? We understand that that's, in a sense, a manifestation of God. It's a manifestation of His character. The entire point is to reveal something about who God is. It's essential. It's an essential, um, fundamental part of the way God, God manifests Himself to us. But the point that I would like to drive home right now is that it's only one manifestation. It's a central manifestation. is without question the most important because it's the one upon which everything else is built. Our day-to-day lives, from every moment, no matter what we're doing, we're interacting with God. We're interacting with God's creation. And, by the way, I mean, this point is made throughout the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament is just a canon of interaction between people and God. Um, but it's also... Tr- Supported, it's obvious also if you look at the New Testament, it depends on how you abstract the idea. Clearly, if you look at a couple of, at least two of the Pauline uh, letters in Ephesians 3.20, again from the CEB, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Okay, doesn't say his power that was at work in us last Wednesday, and then if God finds time next Tuesday morning before his coffee break, then he'll go ahead and start working in us. Okay, this is a continuum. It's an obvious continuum. It's an implication. And we see this similar sentiment in Philippians 1.6. I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Jesus Christ. Again, a continuum. Stay with you. I am sure about this. We have a continuous relationship with God. God is continuously uh, uh, manifesting himself, his character, his will, through our day-to-day experiences. And if you think about it, if we take it up a level of abstraction, almost the entirety of Christ's mission when he was here implies or outright invokes participation. Okay, At the beginning of um, John 9, the famous healing of the blind man, 
was placing mud on the man's eyes the end of that episode? No. The blind man was required to participate in the healing process. And so from John 9-7, Jesus said to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Okay. There's an extra level of engagement. The man had to engage the process. There had to be participation. Uh, we see it again in Mark 1, chapter, Mark chapter 1. Um, this is starting at verse 43. Sternly, Jesus sent him away. This is a leper after he'd been cleansed, saying, don't say anything to anyone. Instead, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice for your cleansing that Moses commanded. This will be a testimony to them. But he cleanses a leper. You can imagine how dramatic that is because leprosy obviously has a... It's uh, very systemic, right? It has a dramatic impact on, on a person's physiology. Um, we don't have to go into all the gruesome details, but you can imagine how dramatic that episode must have been like. But that wasn't enough, okay? There was this extra activity. And all, all, we, we know that um, there were implications, other implications for this extra level of participation. There were religious overtones. There were political, perhaps political overtones. overtones. Nonetheless, um, there was this participation. There was this engagement in the process. The act of healing, just the act of healing. See, uh, Christ's mission obviously was healing with a capital H. Healing, right? The big spiritual healing. And I don't know if you can think of it as allegorical. It's interesting to me that what was his mission? Well, he was here. Well, he healed people. He healed people. And it was um, corporeal, right? It was physical body. But it's, perfect, it's a perfect um, analogy for the larger mission that he was doing. But if you think about it, that process of healing in self implies participation. Because, you know, it wasn't as if Jesus to the blind man said, okay, you can see now, it's, isn't that spectacular, take it all in, and you, sorry, bro, you've got to be blind again, because uh, that's the end of the show. Uh, with the le- leper, he didn't like... Say, okay, your healing's done with, you're a leper again. When you are healed, this is purely practical, right? When you're healed of something, you're freed, you're liberated from some sort of affliction, right? You have a new life. This is a new life, right? You have the blind man can see. Now, he had a, some future. We don't hear about it, but who knows? He went to the bazaar, bought bread, maybe had whatever children or friends or whatever. Um, there's this process, and now this sort of new life is on a continuum, Right? This is something, the healing, the new functionality or facility that the leper had uh, because he was cleansed of his leprosy, um, right, that propagates forward. That propagates forward. Okay, part two. This is going to be longer than the first part. <clears throat> Calling it God's, I wasn't sure whether to call it God's wrath or God's will. And um, this is a big topic, without question. Um, I have chosen four examples of God's wrath, and there are plenty of them. I was tried to be careful in my selection here, um, the reason why I chose them. Um, I tried to make them sort of representative, but again, this is a huge topic, and I can't even begin to suggest that we're going to get into... And by the way, I mean, any one of these, and you'll... We'll go over them here in a moment. Um, again, I mean, you could, volumes, you could write volumes, and volumes have been written about these episodes. Um, but I'm trying to take, I want to take a sample, and I want us to, as we work through this, we're going to apply those two passages we discussed earlier, or I, we talked about earlier, I read for you from the CEB about 
God making man in his image and loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God. And see if we can find a pattern. <clears throat> First one is what happened to Uzzah. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I don't know if it's Uzzah or Uzzah, so I might toggle on that one. That's bad form, but it might happen just incidentally. Um, and the reason I chose an Uzzah is because it was sort of a personal episode, but um, also to understand the meaning or to understand the why. I mean, we're, we're really enamored. Modern culture is really enamored with why. Um, and that's okay. Uh, it requires some, a little bit of historical context. Uh, the other one is uh, Elisha and the young men outside of Bethel. Um, because of its, and this is very subjective. I had a reaction to this when I, I read it. I, I read it as a child, I remember, but then I, as an adult, I reread it, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, but uh, I, I chose that because of its seeming, seeming, I'm making air quotes, outrageousness. Oh, and also in this particular case, it's very evident that translation makes a difference. And then the flood. Uh, the flood is pretty easy because it's enormous, right? Huge scope, the impact. But I, I chose it because to really understand the why um, requires some critical thinking. And then finally, Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the valley. Um, this one is easy if you want to get to the why. And I chose it, I'm just calling it because it's lucid. Okay. <clears throat> The whys that I offer over the next five or ten minutes for these, they're very elliptic and uh, they're not revolutionary. Okay, these are common exegetical explanations you probably heard at one time or another. And as I said, while we're really enamored, modern culture is really enamored with unraveling why things happen, we understand, right, as followers of Christ, that the why here is merely a vehicle to get to the much more important, much larger question of the who, right? Understanding who is orchestrating these events. Understanding God. Okay. Uzzah, struck dead for touching the ark. There's um, a couple account. there's at least two accountings of this. Um, the first one I'll read from First Chronicles. This is starting uh, chapter 13, verse 9. Chapter 13, starting at verse 9. Again, this is the CEB. When they came to the threshing floor at Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. And I'll also read another accounting from 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Okay, what's the context here? Well, the whole, the whole episode is, um, they're moving camp. They're moving their camp. And so they have their tabernacle, and they have all these fixtures, and... Uh, there's a long history there. We don't have time for that. But they're moving the camp, and they've got to move all the stuff. Okay, they're moving all the stuff. Um, so I said earlier that there's historical context. You call it its present context, historical context, too. Um, and it just requires understanding the why, like why that happens. I mean, it seems like that was kind of like a good thing to do, right? Like um, that was not, it was conscientious or whatever, considerate. You know, the oxen stumble, and the cart's like, whoa, and then the 
ark is like, and it's like, whoa, okay, this is good. I'm going to study the ark here. Um, and it seems, it seems unfair, but there's very clear reason why this happens. And you can find why uh, God was so infuriated with Uzzah if you just understand what was going on. Um, I'm going to read from uh, Numbers chapter 7, starting at verse 6. Numbers 7, 6. Ah, so Moses took the wagons and the oxen, and he gave them to the Levites. This is telling you how he's distributing the resources here. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the Gershonites for their duty. Four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the Merorites for their duty, excuse me, under the supervision of Ithamar, Aaron the priest's son. But to the Kohathites he gave nothing because their duty concerned the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulders. So just put that in the bank and come back to it. And also from Numbers, a little bit earlier, chapter 4, verse 15. And when Aaron, this is Aaron, not Moses, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to be, excuse me, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. We have a picture sort of clarifying here, right? Okay, you have the ark. I believe it was anything in the tabernacle, anything that was holy, they're instructed not to touch it. And you remember the construction of the ark is fairly detailed. There, I don't know if you would call them like guy rings or whatever, but are constructed on the side of the ark, and you're supposed to run poles through them, and then the ark is to be carried on the shoulders. This is more just uh, kind of remote commentary. I want to sort of add a couple of other interesting points, but this is more speculation, and I just was you know, um, researching the service today, the sermon today, um, and I, did, I found a lot of commentary about this. Um, someone claims, and I'm not going to hang my hat on this because I don't know for sure, and I'm not going to testify to knowing uh, this for sure, um, but, but a couple places people had mentioned that uh, the Bible does not indicate that Uzzah was a Kohathite. In fact, in fact, someone commented that Sprouse affirms that he was a Levite. But uh, other people say that the Bible is not explicit that he was or was not a Levite. But those are, very, uh, those are a little bit more, um, a little more speculation. What was happening here, right? You're not to touch the ark, okay? And you're not to transport it uh, on, a, on a wagon cart, right? On a, on a cart pulled by oxen. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to carry it on the shoulders. And another thing that, um, that I didn't see anybody point out, but it struck me because uh, back in Numbers 7-6, uh, it tells you how Moses distributed the resources for moving their camp. So, he, right, it tells you explicitly how he divided things up and who he gave, uh, you know, who he, who he gave what to. So, um, but if, if so, if Uzzah and his crew got hold of an ox, or oxen, actually more than one, and a cart, uh, that sort of implies that he was depriving somebody else who needed it to do the job that they were charged to do. And you sort of put things together, and you can kind of uh, process the scene. You can sort of picture the scene. Complete disregard for instruction. 
um, sort of co-opting equipment and resources to kind of take care of what they're doing. The oxen sort of stumble and uh, just didn't even, doesn't even say that the ark was threatened or that the wagon had any deficiency. And Uzzah sort of sticks out his hand. And you sort of get the picture. And I don't mean to clown the guy because he might have been a really nice guy. Uh, I, don't, I, I feel some compassion for the guy. He might have had a family or whatever. But you kind of get the picture that it was like, it was like hey, look at me, Uzzah. You see that saving the ark there? Ark safety Uzzah. Just call me Ark safety Uzzah. Saving the old ark. That's me, Ark safety Uzzah. Okay, bears maul youngsters. Okay, here's the setup. Uh, Elisha has been journeying with Elijah. Elijah gets taken up in a whirlwind. And Elijah gets taken up in a whirlwind. And Elisha is approaching the city of Bethel. Okay. Second Kings starting, uh, chapter 2 starting at verse 23. Again from the CEB. Elijah went up from there to Bethel. As he was going up the road, some young people came out of the city. They mocked him, get going, baldy, get going, baldy. Turning around, Elisha looked at them and cursed them in the Lord's name. Then two bears came out of the woods and mangled 42 of the youths. Okay. In my imagination, I remember this pretty vividly. I remember this pretty vividly. This is maybe 15, 20 years ago, and I read it, and I was I had to like reread it a couple of times. So this is what I'm imagining. So, okay, <clears throat> there's a city out there approaching the city, and there's like a bunch of kids out playing, whatever kids back, however many, uh, you know, over two millennia were how they sort of in- kept themselves busy with activities. I don't know if they like inflated a goat stomach or something and made a ball out of it and played soccer with it or whatever. So the kids are out there playing. They're having a good old time. And uh, so in, a, in, a, in sort of an act of youthful temerity, they sort of, poke fun at Elisha's appearance, right? They poke fun at Elisha's appearance. And then what happens, uh, a couple, you know, Elisha seems like a really kind of thin-skinned prophet, and he calls, puts a curse on him, and bears come down and wipe him out, wipe out 42 of them. <clears throat> but this is just, this is a really intellectual laziness on my part. And the why and the justification, the, the scene, actually what's going on, I had completely disrupted it in my mind. By the way, I'm not the only one guilty of that, because when I was researching this, and I had seen this in the past too, um, a lot of people, you see this like the rational wiki, had really uh, excoriate this event. It's like just a bunch of children playing, and then, you know, this guy, this guy is, you know, he can't take the fact that children are insulting his baldness. So I can't be the only one who visualized that scene that way. That could just be a, a kind of a linguistic issue. It might be an issue with translation, as we'll see. Um, we have to dig in a little bit. We have to dig in a little bit. We don't have to, but um, it's useful here. <clears throat> the Hebrew used here to describe the people, this group, what we're thinking of as children or youngsters or whatever translation happens to um, present to you, uh, is represented phonetically in English as uh, na'ar. N-A apostrophe A-R, na'ar. I may not be pronouncing it right. Um, okay, this is a study in itself. But this word is used throughout... Uh, Hebraic writings, including the Bible, um, or parts of the Bible, to describe anything from a child, indeed, to um, a young man. Um, it also has a figurative feel to it, and that is that it can be used to describe a young man who is behaving childishly. Okay. So, a 25-year-old uh, young man who is having sort of an emotional kind of breakdown would be Na'ar. 
Okay. If the bears, if the bears mauled 42 of them, this implies that there are more than 42 to start with. It doesn't say how many. So, uh, it mauled 42 of them. So if, it, if there were 42, it would have said, it would have said it would have, it, the bears mauled all 42 of them. So there's 43 or more, I guess, it's pretty safe to, to induce from what's happening there. So this is not like a group of kids playing a game. This is like a mob, right? 50 people, maybe? 100 people? The other thing, too, uh, is that you know, this may be over-analyzing things a little bit, but um, the way bears work, <laughs> if you know anything at all about them, is that at least modern bears, I don't know if bears back then if were any different, but um, they focus on a single target. So what happens is this is why when you hear about bear attacks, like when a bear attacks hikers or something, it's always the same story. What happens is, is that there's a victim, and then the rest of the hikers are around to tell about what happened. Because the bear does not distract itself. Once a bear focuses on a mark. Again, this may be overanalyzing things. But to me, I mean, they could have been berserker bears, right? I mean, if God wants to make a statement, um, then God's going to make a statement. But just approaching things from a purely analytical standpoint, bears, two bears, could have really damaged 42 people if the people were sort of vacillating on whether to fight back or run. You know, the bears come storming out, right, and they start just going crazy. And then so people are like, wait, you know, there's a bunch of us and we can attack. And then, um, but children wouldn't do that, right? Children would just scatter. Okay, but young men might try to engage the bears. And so a number like 42, even with regular old bears, this would not be unreasonable. We don't need the berserker bear explanation here. A couple other things worth um, considering, and these are important, but these are kind of speculative. Um, we know, and again, this is a big topic, that, um, that even to this day, that there are sects of Hebrewism or Judaism um, that are very zealous, very zealous about shaving one's head or shaving one's beard. That's like a big deal. Yeah, it's a very big deal with a lot of political and religious overtones. Again, this is a study to itself. I can't really provide any thorough exegesis here, but it's something worth considering. Um, the other thing that's worth considering, um, I'm going to read uh, about Elijah's ascent, but this one is from KJ21, the 21st century King James um, Bible, or translation. Second uh, Kings chapter 2, verse 11 Again, KJ 21. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Okay. Again, you look a little bit. The same Hebrew word, Allah, Allah, uh, apostrophe A1L, A-H, is used... In both places, it's used to both describe Elijah's ascent and also the words of the mob. So we put everything together. Um, this is not a, this was not a group of children that were just out playing around, frivolously having a good time. This was a mob. I mean, this was a mob assault, and maybe even with really grave epithet and really grave mockery. 
Uh, and by the way, when you hear about like 50, 100 people, like a mob that are hurling epithets and, and really grave and disparaging mockery at, at someone, at an individual or even a small group, what typically ensues? Right? It's not uncommon for violence or a riot to happen. The flood. I'll read from Genesis starting, uh, chapter 6, starting at verse 5. This is again from the CEB, Common English Bible. We're going back to the Common English Bible. The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea in their minds, or, yeah, that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth and he was heartbroken. So the Lord said, I will wipe off of the land of the human race that I've created from human beings to livestock to the crawling things to the birds in the skies because I regret I ever made them. And then verse 8. But as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. And just as a, just as a footnote, this is really an aside. Now, Noah was a descendant of, of Seth, not Cain, nor Abel for that matter. And we know this from the genealogy presented in uh, Genesis chapter 5. Okay, so why did this happen? <clears throat> People were evil. And then, uh, God approves of Noah. On the face, on the face, you know, thoroughly evil, God approves of Noah. Thoroughly evil, God approves of... So, right, we have this, kind of this interesting time lapse where we have creation and then we have the flood. So Noah kind of pops up and then, but ah, the Lord's good with Noah. Uh, on its face, I mean, these descriptions, right, thoroughly evil, approved of, seem vague. Right, they seem vague, um, but we do know though about the rebellion in Eden, and uh, we know about Cain taking Abel's life. So the scene basically cuts to Noah, and we're told that the Lord, the Lord approved of him explicitly. The Lord approved of Noah. Here's a case where what is not said, at least here, at least here, um, speaks volumes. Okay, so consider. Humanity is barely a generation and a half into the whole project, and we already have a case of outright desertion and fratricide. Okay, so human race hit the ground running. Okay, this is really important, um, and this may be debatable. I tried to research this, um, but please, if if you have a contrary opinion, uh, let me know after the service. Um, neither Adam nor Eve to my knowledge, pursued reconciliation. And as for Cain, um, exegetes debate whether or not he really said, my sin is too great to bear or my sin is too great to be forgiven. Um, one might sort of imply penitence, perhaps, and we understand penitence is important to develop a relationship with God, but penitence is like the first couple of steps along a marathon, right? We're, our goal is reconciliation. Our goal is resolution. Remember the last time, uh, last time I spoke, uh, when we talked about the idea of precision, how it applies to communication, how it applies to scientific thinking, and we used the example of Dickens' Christmas Carol. Um, sort of the example we used um, was we don't really need to know the 
a detailed explanation of the electrical impulses in Scrooge's brain to get the point of the story. And I think that something very similar is at work here. The language thoroughly evil and the Lord approved of him, speaking of Noah, is far more uh, than precise enough for us to know really exactly what was happening here, right? Right? We have rebellion in Eden, Eden, Cain taking Abel's life, and then Noah approves of, or God approves of Noah. So what was happening here through this time? It was business as usual. It was just business as usual. It's um, like, you know, the, the whole culture of it, the classic sort of hit-and-run mentality. Um, no harm, no foul, God. We're doing fine. Thanks for checking in. Uh, whatever's good for me must be good for you. Finally here, and we're getting um, close to closing this out, um, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to revisit these and, and, and put some degree of finality on these. We're just trying to get to the why right now with the larger image of trying to understand the who behind the why. Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll read from Genesis, again from the CEB, chapter 19, starting at verse 23. As the sun rose over the earth, Lot arrived in Zoar. And the Lord rained down burning asphalt from the skies unto Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord destroyed these cities, the entire valley, everyone who lived in the cities, and all of the fertile lands of vegetation. Okay, the why here is very straightforward, and we have Ezekiel to thank for that. In Ezekiel chapter 16, this is essentially God's... Um, it's not a chastisement. It's really an excoriation about Jerusalem. It's, that may even be an understatement. In particular, if we look at the 49th verse, chapter 16, speaking of Jerusalem, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were proud. They were proud. They had plenty to eat and enjoyed peace and prosperity. But... She didn't help the poor and the needy. And then the sentiment continues on in the next verse, verse 49, but that's, uh, excuse me, in, the, um, in verse 50, but uh, verse 49 is plenty sufficient for our reasoning. Um, okay, so now we kind of want to bring this back together and think about, go from the whys and think about the who. There's a couple pieces of critical content and I'm calling one, the first one, uh, the a priori nature of reality. Sort of coming into the program, what we know about reality. As, as objective as possible. Um, one, one thing we do know about reality is that creation can be very violent. It's punctuated with all sorts of catastrophe and calamity. Entire cities and entire civilizations have been and gone. And I want to point out that this is this challenge of trying to understand the, this world in which we live, where um, we have volcanic eruptions and we have wars and strife. Um, this is not unique to Christianity. I mean, humanists, no matter where you are in the belief spectrum, you have the exact same problem. I mean, humanists, um, you know, they have to avail themselves to some causative, causative agency as well. Um, and, uh, you know, if they have some causative force up their sleeve that... Um, a, obviates war and somehow cleaves the Earth's tectonic plates together to alleviate earthquakes, I sure haven't seen it. 
The second one is, um, and I remember Damon said this, and it's come up a couple of times, this idea that everyone dies. Okay, this is, this is important, but we have to understand what the meaning of that statement is. Everyone dies because it has different interpretations. Uh, this is not to belittle death, because death is a big deal. Okay? What we're saying is that this property of, ine- uh, this property of inevitable death is, does not make any one person unique. So you cannot say, oh, that person does not have inevitable death or did not already die or whatever. This is, we're all kind of in this together. This is a property that it is att- attributable to all of us. And it is completely immutable, at least from a corporeal sense. Um, and, and think about it like this, too. Um, you know, on the day Uzzah got zapped, dozens, maybe, I'm speculating, hundreds, maybe even more, other people died, too. From, you know, in this place or that place, from this cause or that cause. Well, we don't know about them, right? And it's a big world. But we are told of Uzzah. All these other people died. We don't know anything about them. They came and went. No real trace of history. Um, but we're told about Uzzah. <clears throat> so the who. Um, dare I say that there are a lot of people that really see the revelation of God through the suffering, death, and resurrection of His Son there are people that see it in this way, and that is as a storybook of mythical characters and symbols. Um, and we only went over four examples, and we understood the rationale of why these events happen. But um, I'll tell you the, the who that crystallizes, for me anyway. Um, if you look beyond the poetry and the exposition of these stories, the characters, the places, the God that is orchestrating all these things is frankly systematic, consistent, and very repetitive because we're getting the same story over and over and over and over again. The players change, the faces change, the places change, the accoutrements change, it's the same story over and over and over again. Um, and uh, this isn't in my notes, um, but I want to say this as a preface. We're going to close it out. We're going to revisit um, the four examples that we looked at. Um, but I, it's important for me to say, and this is all speaking for myself, um, maybe I speak for you, uh, I, but I can't. Um, this is not a soapbox mo- moment for me. Or, and you'll see what I'm talking about as we proceed. Um, this is not a holier-than-thou moment for me because all the things that we talked about with Uzzah, um, not looking after uh, my fellow image bearers, being selfish, um, all those things I'm guilty of. I mean, I've done all those things. I, and I've done it with a flourish and many times over. God made humanity in His image. Love your Creator with all your heart, mind, soul, energy, and love your neighbor as yourself. For Uzzah, you twice defy God's instruction. I'm going to quote from South Park Season 6, Episode 2. Uzzah, you're going to have a bad time. To the mob at Bethel, you at least assault a guest to your city. You're going to have a bad time. To the antediluvian people, you attempt to validate rebellion against God 
You're going to have a bad time. I threw a couple extra in there, even though we didn't talk about it, about them, these particular examples, but you're familiar with these, I'm sure. To the Amalekites, instead of offering aid to your fellow image bearers wandering in the desert, you attack them. And not even dealing with the whole issue with Esau and the covenant he violated with God and the Amalekites abiding that. Amalekites are going to have a bad time. To the practitioners of the golden calf cult, you turn your love from God, your creator and liberator, to an effigy of a cow. You're going to have a bad time. And finally for today, to the cities of the valley, despite the prosperity God has generously provided You fail to take care of your fellow image bearers in need in your very own communities. What do you think is going to happen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us grateful hearts. I'm very grateful. I'm so very grateful that I have this place, I can fellowship here, I can come here, I can spend time with your fellow image bearers. All the things that we have, our abodes, our cars, if we have a car, if you blessed us with a car, whatever, our bicycles, our clothes, they do not belong to us These are things that belong to you that you have graciously bestowed upon us for the time that we're here. Don't ever let us forget that. In the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.